it's important to remember there's sort of like a balance between when to use data and when to use intuition. You know, you should use data when it's available <laughs> and when you can actually structure an experiment. You also shouldn't get paralyzed by data. You should know when to use your intuition. You know, you don't create revolutionary products by optimizing your way there. It comes from somebody who has a vision or a team of people who have a vision and execute it. Hello and welcome to Good Data, Better Marketing, the ultimate guide to driving customer engagement. Today's episode features an interview with Andrew Mock, Chief Marketing Officer at Turo. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. Looking for clean, reliable data that you can trust? Segment collects, cleans, and allows you to activate your data in real time across hundreds of applications and channels. Learn about how Segment can help you personalize customer experiences by visiting segment.com. Paralysis by analysis is a tale as old as time. You want to have as much data as possible so you can stay close to your customer. But data is only half the equation. The other piece is intuition. This second site plays a critical role when it comes to empowering teams to create revolutionary products. Andrew Mock of Turo is walking the line between data and intuition. In today's episode, I sit down with Andrew to discuss building AI and human insights into strategies, stopping the scroll, and dogfooding your product. I'm excited today. I have Andrew Mock here. He is the CMO of Turo, which is the world's largest car sharing marketplace. He's been with them since 2012 and oversees both sales and marketing. He's really focused on building both sides of their marketplace. He's also an engineer by training. So I'm excited to hear how he's bringing together his left and his right brain to help build this iconic brand and how he's grown Turo by over 250x in revenue since joining in 2012. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show, Kaylee. Really excited to be here and tell folks a little bit more about myself and about the Turo story. Awesome. Well, I want to kick it off and get to know you have a little bit of a, an unfamiliar path to your way of marketing. Tell me a little bit more about your career journey in your own words. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Growing up, I actually never thought I would be in the field of marketing. So I sort of stumbled into it over the course of my career. So just going a little bit further back in terms of my background, I'm the son of Asian immigrants, first generation Asian American. And so like many children of immigrants, my parents really focused on emphasizing the hard skills, the practical skills, you know, things that could get me a job <laughs> because we grew up with very little. And so when I went to school at UC Berkeley, I studied computer science and, and business. I think very early on, I realized, you know, I'd always been interested in computers. I remember when I was younger, I used to build computers and tinker with computers. But once I got to Cal and I met some of the best and brightest minds of the engineering world, I pretty much knew immediately that engineering was not going to be my forte. <laughs> I still remember this Monday after a weekend, I got together with some fellow classmates and everybody was kind of recapping what they did over the weekend. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I explored Berkeley. We went out, you know, we went to the park, we hung out, et cetera. We went to the football game. And one of my partners on the project was like, oh, yeah, I, um, you know, read the Java manual over the weekend. And you're like, that is not relatable to me. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to get an A in this class. <laughs> this sounds pretty that. difficult. 
<laughs> you know, so I, I'm really glad I had that experience and I had that background. I feel like I know enough to kind of be dangerous and have a conversation with engineers and my left brain counterparts. But, you know, I, I knew pretty quickly that engineering wasn't going to be my life's work. So when I graduated from college, I started my career actually doing strategy consulting at Bain. I did a lot of like private equity type stuff, you know, looking at M&A deals, doing diligence. Lots and lots of spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations is kind of, kind of the <laughs> yes. long and short of it. You know, eventually I just kind of got the itch to join the startup world. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I'd always been intrigued by startups and by entrepreneurship. My father has always done kind of his own companies and worked in tech. And so it was always in my DNA, I guess, that I was going to be interested in doing tech startups. So in 2012, I sort of took a leap of faith and I joined a company at the time called Relay Rides. We've since, of course, rebranded to Turo. And I did a little bit of everything. We only had 25 employees at the time. Our offering was only available in San Francisco and Boston. And so really, I did a little bit of everything from analytics to finance to marketing to you name it, <laughs> more slides, more spreadsheets, you know, pretty much anything that needed to be done. And fast forward to today, Turo's in over 11,000 cities. We're in the US, in the UK, in Canada, France, and Australia. Our team is over 800 strong and, you know, the company's doing quite well. So it's been a fun journey. That's amazing. I also, I grew up in the Boston ecosystem of startups in 2012. And this is, I remember the name really rides at the time. It's like, I feel like this nostalgia is hitting me this moment right now. That's so, that's so funny. I was also employee number two, so I can empathize with the wearing of many hats and doing many things in the very early stages. You get exposed to a lot of different yeah. sides of the business, which I think is just unbelievable to accelerate your learning. Totally. It was extremely fun. And actually, Boston has a very special place in our company's history because I think Incredibly. that actually was our very first city. The founder of our company, his name was Shelby Clark. He actually came up with the idea of peer-to-peer -peer car sharing because it was one of those crazy winters in Boston. I've never lived on the East Coast. I've only heard of it. And he always describes it as, you know, it was one of those days where it was like sleeting upwards. <laughs> and it was just completely crazy. And he needed to get access to a car. He didn't own a car. And so he was going to, I think, a nearby car rental pickup location. And he was riding his bike, which is all he had. And the snow was just like knocking him over. And the blizzard was just disorienting him. And he saw all these cars that were just parked on the side of the street, like collecting snow. He's like, why can't I just use one of those? <laughs> That's the genesis of the business model. So Boston has a very special place in the company's history. I love it. I can see the early days pitch deck starting with the founder story in the blizzard. It's a great story. So you've seen a lot of different iterations of Relay Rides, now Turo, and you've seen the company grow quite a lot. And with that, I'm sure you've seen a lot of trends come and go and things that you all are kind of focusing on. So I'm curious to get your take, CMO of a very fast-growing company. What are some of the trends that you're currently seeing related to customer experience? I mean, I think, of course, one of the hot topics right now is just everybody's talking about AI and what does that mean in terms of the field and really just like humanity at large. You know, I think this trend has actually been playing out for a very long time. I mean, everybody's excited about AI now because they've seen what OpenAI has done with ChatGPT, and it's, you know, very, very impressive. And, you know, people are seeing, I think, a lot of practical application of ChatGPT being able to surface recommendations or write things for you or produce new things. But really, you know, there's been this whole trend of AI, or I guess you could call a more basic format of it, just like machine learning in general, that has 
been around for a long time now and actually has been changing quite a bit. You know, one example of this is with performance marketing. You know, 10 years ago with performance marketing, you used to need a team of engineers and marketing managers to update the bids every single day and to, you know, be doing thousands of A-B tests running this copy versus that copy and, you know, creative testing all the time. And, you know, it was very, very kind of complicated to be able to run these experiments. Nowadays, Google, Meta, they've created these machine learning algorithms where you just throw everything in a pot and the computers kind of figure it out for you. <laughs> and they automatically optimize for the best copy to match with the best design, with the best creative. They automatically, you know, optimize your bids so it's delivering the best ROI for you or your payback period or whatever is the success metrics that you're optimizing against. So this thing has kind of been going on, I would say, for a while. And I think AI and ChatGPT and all that stuff, there's some really exciting applications that are only going to make it you know, even more sophisticated and, and better. That being said, so what does that leave for the rest of us feeble humans? What are we going to be doing? I think there's just been a trend that has been going on for a while that's going to be further accelerated, which is a premium on things that only humans can do. So human stories, human connection, originality, <laughs> creativity. You know, these are things that robots by definition can't do because people value them because they come from another human. That's turbocharging even more, I think, just this idea of like coming up with original content, coming up with original campaigns, doing things that are new, doing things that are different, that are authentic to sort of like what it means to be a human. I think those are going to be the types of stories that really resonate. So I was just having a conversation. One of my very good friends is a singer-songwriter. And in that industry in particular, they're really thinking about how is this going to change the game? Are we not going to be writing songs anymore? Is AI going to be writing this? Are they going to take my voice and be able to write the song simultaneously? Like, where's my place? And at the end of the day, to your point, it's like, actually, I think that's the greatest place for humans to continue to insert themselves is the computers can't really figure out how to be entirely original. They're in a lot of ways still regurgitating a lot of, you know, the information that they're pulling from different blog posts, data points that they're pulling across the web. And human insights and human intuition, human creativity is the thing that's probably one of the most interesting assets moving forward. How is that impacting Turo? Yeah. What are some of the ways that you're kind of thinking about building that into campaigns and programs? A really big part of our brand strategy has always been centered around hosts and guests and, you know, the people that are sort of behind the community operating peer-to-peer car sharing. And so for us, it's even more leaning into that. So the human stories of our hosts, our incredible host community. You know, we have the single mom who shares five cars on Turo so that she can stay at home with her kids and still generate an income. We have the pastor in Hawaii who has and wants to continue to dedicate his life to local community service and helping his community. But he also needs an income because he has five kids. <laughs> so, you know, he starts a small car sharing business. So really highlighting, I think, more and more of these stories has always been a big part of our branding and it's going to be something that we continue to do. I mean, I think also just kind of speaking more from the marketing lens, I think we've put even more of a premium on creativity and creative direction in our phenomenal in-house creative team that's comprised of designers, video producers, photographers, copywriters, content strategists. I mean, we really believe that that is part of the special sauce of what we do is the team that we've built and the team dynamic and our process for brainstorming and coming up with concepts and testing them and making them better and reacting to trends as they happen. I mean, these are all things that I think it would be very, very difficult for a robot to replace. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of places that 
robots, AI can insert themselves into the customer experience. But building that sense of authenticity and that sense of connection really does take a human touch to be able to understand. There was a one of those videos that came out today. Somebody had an AI bot spit out a movie trailer for like Heidi or something. It looked like a horror movie. It was like yeah. unbelievably scary. There was beards in places there shouldn't be. The fingers were all like crooked. And so, yes, we still need human beings. I mean, that's the thing is you can tell when something today is being generated by chat GPT or being generated by AI. I was just catching up with my aunt a couple of weekends ago. She's a university professor. And this is a huge deal at schools and especially universities is kids. Just, I mean, I probably would have done the same thing when I was in college. Absolutely. You're the using the tools available. You get the yeah, exactly. You get the essays and she's like, you know, it's pretty obvious like when it's actually being written by a student and when it's being done by a robot. You could just tell from the language and just like the way that they describe things because everybody kind of has their own works to how they write and also just the way in terms of how humans interpret things. And I don't want to downplay how advanced AI can get. I'm sure it can get to the point where it will be hard to resemble, but I don't think we should underestimate how difficult it is to replicate all those things. I think in general with new technologies, it's the whole hype cycle. We as a society, we get super excited when we see this thing and we're like, oh my God, it's changed the world and we're imagining like everything to the extreme. But I think we should always remember that the technology, the first 80% comes from 20% of the work. The last 20% is 80% of the work. One of the best examples of this, I think, is autonomous vehicles. I remember, this is maybe seven, eight years ago, everybody was asking us about what's going to happen to your business model with autonomous vehicles? What's going to happen? What does transportation look like, et cetera? And, you know, I I think at the time, we felt like autonomous vehicles were really actually quite revolutionary. And people have used it in very revolutionary ways. But this vision of nobody is driving, everybody is just laying back in their cars and the cars are just transporting them everywhere. I think we all felt a lot Sign of me up. that we were going to be a long ways away from them. And I think we're seeing that today. Like the first 80% think Tesla autopilot, think assisted staying in the lanes and adaptive cruise control. That's all here. It's all great. People use it. But the last 20% of I'm sleeping <laughs> and the car is just doing its thing and it's taking me from the Bay Area up the mountains to Tahoe. We're a very, very long way away. And it's very difficult to get it done. Yeah, I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole. I would love for there not to be traffic anymore because in theory, you know, if you're building autonomous vehicles and IoT that are all speaking to each other, you would eliminate hopefully a lot of accidents, a lot of traffic. But then how do you build morality into the algorithms? If something does go wrong, like who are you choosing? You know, how do you share that information back and forth? And how do you build that across governments? There's plenty of roads that cross countries. States have different laws. So like, a lot of complexity related to that. And you're right, not even on a technological level, also just truly on the level of trying to get anything through Congress. Good luck. Like the change is going to be slower than you expect. Yeah, exactly. It's the the social proofing and the kind of the community proofing. Yeah, is just as significant. Absolutely. One of the things that you were really talking about a little bit earlier was really, you know, kind of centered around the idea of you're speaking to a person like they're a person. You're using customer stories, which is really, in a sense, driving you know, a lot of personalization. You're, you're speaking to me, one-to-one Kaylee. This is the type of car. This is the type of experience that I like to have. How are you seeing personalization and data impact a lot of the strategies at Turo right now? 
that has always been one of the core tenets of building our business is staying super close to the customer and using data to drive our decision making. It's important to remember there's sort of like a balance between when to use data and when to use intuition. You know, you should use data when it's available and when you can actually structure an experiment, but you also shouldn't get paralysis by analysis. You also shouldn't get paralyzed by data. You should know when to use your intuition. You know, you don't create revolutionary products by optimizing your way there. It comes from somebody who has a vision or a team of people who have a vision and who execute it. So I think that has always been sort of the journey of Turo is we want to stay super close to the customer. We want to stay super close to the data and balance that with sort of the collective intuition and sort of the collective vision that we have for the market and for the product that we're building. This is great. I was talking to the CMO of Anthropology recently, and she was saying the exact same thing, which is like data can obviously inform a lot of what you're talking about. But if you're going to innovate and create an entirely new category, that's probably coming from humans, right? That insight, that vision, as you said, is probably coming not from historical data that you're crunching and taking a look at the trends that happened last year because you're trying to create a new trend. And it's a really interesting balance that you're talking about. Do you have a rule or a sense for when you use data and when you use intuition? Do you have any like constitution that you're saying like this is how, when we do this? Yeah, I wish I did, but I don't. <laughs> I mean, I think that's kind of the value of leaders at the company and how you've designed the company. But what I will say is that I think oftentimes it can be very intertwined with clear accountability within a company. So what will happen is if there is not clear accountability and clear decision-making within a company, oftentimes people will default to wanting to look at data and analyze data because they're hoping that data will point to a decision that then is just consensus and is accepted by everybody. Whereas when there's kind of clear decision-making and clear accountability, one person or a group of people will feel empowered to sort of say like, I have a vision and I want to push forward this vision without having to necessarily fall back on kind of paralysis by analysis. So I do think the two really go hand in hand, this idea of being data-driven and looking at data, but also making sure that there's kind of clear accountability and clear ownership with, within your company. That's great. And I, I think that makes uniting around a customer and making sure that you're building valuable experiences for them a whole lot easier. If you have that clear accountability and it's going across teams and across silos, then you're breaking those down in a lot of ways because you're able to make decisions with one person at the center of that. And usually that is your customer. Yeah, totally. And I think a lot of what we do at Turo and at many companies is it's sort of the, it's a collective conversation that we're having. And it's all about creating this ecosystem and creating kind of processes and defining the ways in which we work together so that the best ideas can win. We want as many ideas as possible. We want a diversity of ideas. We want a diversity of opinions. We want a diversity of people reflecting those opinions. And then we need to process so that the best ideas win. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we design our road mapping process, our brainstorming, how we work together so that the best ideas can elevate to the top. And an equally important part of that is making sure that when the ideas are being generated, the customer voice is being represented. I think this is something that it's, I mean, it just sounds so in some ways like trite, like listen to your customers, spend time with your customers. But it's like, it's so simple, but <laughs> so many companies forget to do it. I think especially as you get bigger, you know, you spend your day to day with your colleagues, with your coworkers, checking your Slack, checking all the red dots on your screen. And you just kind of forget like why we're all here, which is we're here to serve our customers. 
And so that has been a really big focus for us is making sure the customer voice is intertwined with the employee voice. So an example of that is we use Slack for all of our employee communication and, you know, we don't really use emails anymore. We actually have all of our customer feedback piped into Slack. So all the feedback that comes in from the app, all the feedback that comes in from NPS surveys, all the feedback that comes in through our customer support channels, both in-source and offshore, everything is all just sort of in there in Slack. And sometimes it can get kind of unruly. I mean, you're seeing thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of feedback come in every day. But you see people within the company, read them, tag people, share them in certain places. And our CEO actually is known to read, I think, pretty much every single piece of feedback. <laughs> you, you could be the unlucky recipient of a midnight tag when he catches something. But that's an example of their voice being included in this process of, you know, the best ideas win. So that, I think, has been a critical part of how we've designed the company. That's brilliant. I think there's a couple of just like really interesting ideas in there. The first is making sure you're bringing together the feedback loops of your employees and your customers. You got to make sure that there's complete visibility between the two. You got to make sure that both are rowing in the same direction. It can be really easy, to your point, to sit at a desk all day, especially, in, I feel like, in remote. You're sitting at a desk all day. You have one of those click-clack jobs. You know, you're at your computer. And you can forget who your customer is and why you're logging in every single day. But that constant feed of customer feedback coming in from, it seems like, every direction. You, may, you mentioned a few different types of ways you're collecting customer feedback. It creates that strategy. It builds that energy. It really keeps people accountable. I think that's brilliant. So, like, way to go. Yeah, we're really proud of it. I think it's a huge part of our DNA. And I think at some points, folks may feel like, oh, well, it's a lot of noise or it's a lot of comments or it's a lot of feedback. But I think, you know, it's a lot better the alternative, which is no noise at all. <laughs> you know, and of course, I think there's things that we do to synthesize it and we try to group it and so we can make it so that the themes come out and we can do some better pattern recognition. So we're always working on those things. But I do think it's important to make sure that it's just part of your daily routine. If your routine is you're checking Slack from feedback from your boss, from your colleagues, from your team, from your partners at, at agencies, et cetera, equally important, if not more important, is you need to check that red dot with the customers. <laughs> and so we really want to make sure that's part of everybody's routine. I love that because I hear, as you might imagine, I hear on this show quite often is listen to your customer. Yes. Okay. But you just gave a tangible example of how to actually implement it. Slack integrations, make sure that every channel is actually piping data in. And then, of course, we can get to making sure that you're synthesizing those into unique categories and pushing them out to the teams that need to take action on them accordingly. But that information flow is really kind of the first place. I'm wondering, based off of that or anywhere else, if there's any new customer behaviors that you've been noticing over the past couple of years, anything cropping up that you're watching? I think there's generally this broader trend that Turo is a beneficiary of, experiences over things. You know, this is very different than my parents' generation where I mean, I still, even to this day, my parents are collecting things and hoarding things and they want things, you know, and you, if you get a job and you get your first paycheck, the first thing you do is you get a thing. <laughs> I want a thing to commemorate my success or that I've gotten to this life stage. And I think the younger generation, they really value unique experiences and are valuing experiences over things. And I think that that is something that has been a big tailwind for our business because, you know, most of the time when people are comparing Turo to an alternative, the alternative is traditional car rental. And traditional car rental, you think, 
economy car, you think compact, you think the blase car in white. <laughs> I got a and mystery car the other day. It wasn't what I wanted. Mystery car. Yeah. I mean, that category always continues to boggle my mind. You know, imagine if you went to Amazon and you were like, I want to get some soap. Get, send me mystery soap. <laughs> you're like, no, I want this specific thing. Or send me a mystery t-shirt. There's really no other industry where people have been trained to like not actually get what they want. I think that has really been one of the reasons why folks tell us that they really love using Turo so much is because they get to pick exactly what car they're going to get. They get to see it in advance. They get to pick the thing that fits whatever is the mood or the vibe that they're trying to achieve for that trip. You know, if you're going to Hawaii, maybe you want a convertible. If you're going to Denver for a ski trip, maybe you want a Jeep. If you're going, you know, to California, maybe you want to try out a Tesla. If you're going to Texas, maybe you want to get that pickup truck, you know, and live the Texan life where the roads are a lot bigger. So it allows people, I think, to kind of curate the experience that they want on their trip. And I think it's been a really, really big part of why guests choose Turo. So that's definitely a big trend for us is experiencing the over things. And I imagine kind of related to this is people are choosing things related to like a lifestyle, right? And so in particular, what I'm thinking about is ESG. Like everybody is looking towards electric right now. Maybe they want to test drive an electric car, but they might not be able to do that in any other way. And so it's this interesting way for people to kind of be able to explore things that they're interested in, that they care about as a human. And that's kind of an interesting convergence of what we're talking about as well. Do you see that? So EVs are actually one of the fastest growing categories, kind of vehicle categories on our marketplace, exactly for the reason like that, that you just mentioned. You know, everybody has heard about extended, or sorry, about electric vehicles. And I think everybody is somewhat at least interested in kind of experiencing it, but they're really nervous. They're nervous about range anxiety. They're nervous about, are there enough chargers? They're nervous about, can my child seat fit in it? <laughs> Does it work for my daily routine? These are the types of questions that you're not going to get answered from a one-hour test drive with a rep sitting in the front seat with you and hounding you for a sale. These are things where you're going to want to take it home and park it in your garage and you know put your kids in it, et cetera. That's actually been one of the top use cases at Turo is we call it sort of the try before you buy or extended test drive of people who are booking Teslas, they're booking Rivians, they're booking Lucids. They're booking all of the kind of the latest and greatest EVs so that they can actually experience it for themselves and see if it fits their lifestyle. And the good news for the EV industry in general is that when we survey these guests, most of the time people have a really, really good experience and they, you know, they sort of <laughs> sign up for the wait list shortly after. So it's been a very positive trend for the marketplace. That's interesting and feels like an interesting partnership opportunity. I'm like, ooh, my brain is going in a lot of different directions. That's, that's really cool that it's like a use case that you've seen kind of growing. I'm wondering, based off of these like unique, perhaps, use cases we've talked about, there's a, a trend around people with experiences. There's this trend around EV and it's kind of accelerating some use cases for you. Are you building kind of unique customer experiences off the back of what you know about each of these customers and the use cases that they might have? Walk me through that. Yeah, so increasingly, we're trying to use sort of the browsing data and also the search data and the booking data of our guests to kind of customize their experience. I think that's the beautiful thing about our marketplace because we have thousands and thousands of makes and models. Literally, you can find any car under the sun. We support so many different types of use cases. You know, it's not just family travel or business travel. It's the extended test drive, like I mentioned. It could be special occasions. You're looking to get 
the classic, you know, 67 Mustang to surprise your dad on Father's Day. It could be you're looking to get the minivan so that you can fit the whole family plus the grandparents on a trip to Hawaii. Like it can mean so many different things. And so you can imagine the marketing and the product experience needs to be very different for the family minivan versus the person looking for the Lambo. <laughs> and so, you know, increasingly we use that data in our marketing and within kind of our product user experience so that we can show them, hey, you showed us you were interested in EVs. Did you know the Cybertruck is coming out and we're going to be the first place where you can test drive the Cybertruck? Here's a notification. And so that has been part of how we kind of personalize the experience based on the different use cases we observe. That's great. And so I imagine you're kind of collecting data from a lot of different streams. How are you collecting some of that data? Like favorite lists? How do you understand exactly what kinds of vehicles or experiences, you know, use cases somebody might have? How are you categorizing these people and building audiences? Yeah, so we look at their browsing behavior on the site or within the app so we can see what they search, what vehicle listings they click on. We can see what filters they use. Most importantly, we can see what trips they actually book. That's usually sort of the best indicator is looking at prior trips. We increasingly can also just ask. We always kick around this idea of maybe folks eventually can follow a make. They can follow Tesla or they can follow a category. They can follow trucks or they can follow EV trucks. <laughs> and they can tell us, you know, through permission marketing, what it is actually that they want to hear about and, and learn more about. So increasingly, it's kind of a combination of both the implicit data, so that the data that is related to their browsing, as well as the explicit data of them explicitly telling us what they're interested in. I, I love that. There's this concept that's emerged over the past couple of years and it's zero party data, which is exactly what you're talking about, which is form fill. Tell me about yourself. Tell me what you care about. Tell me about what you like. And then we can actually market to you and build experiences for you appropriately, which is really powerful when combining it with click data, action oriented data, behavioral data, which is first party data. So interesting to hear that you're kind of experimenting with both really high quality signals. What I want to move to is we've talking about some of the user experiences. I'm wondering how that actually looks like on the acquisition side of things. So I'm imagining you're acquiring people from all different types of channels, whether it's organic or paid, and you really need to like stop somebody's attention and make sure that you're resonating with them when they're seeing Turo for the very first time. How are you taking some of the data that we just talked about and using it on the acquisition side to build those campaigns to get people to care about Turo, see Turo for the first time and use you? I think one of the most powerful ways we've been able to use that is actually just using it to personalize the creative that they see. So if we understand from your browsing behavior that you're interested in EVs, we'll show you an EV and we'll take you to a landing page that focuses on EV. Or, you know, on some channels where you explicitly will search for something like on SEM, for example, wedding cars, luxury cars, supercars, you know, family cars. EVs, or maybe you're searching specifically for a make model, you know, of course, we'll use that data in customizing the copy that they see as well as the landing experience that they have as well. So it's really, you know, actually quite a powerful way for us to be able to bifurcate the experience that people see. I think, you know, there's many companies that are doing this very well. I think the most notable ones would be like Netflix or like TikTok. They've just been 
really, really good at getting you in these rabbit holes where you just keep going because they know what's interesting to you based off of your swipe activity. And we're definitely drawing some inspiration from them. You know, how do we make the platform as addicting in a positive way as possible based off of your browsing behavior and what you've demonstrated your interest in? Absolutely. And this is really powerful related to what we were talking about earlier, which is like that authenticity, right? So building a really authentic customer story around EV and then pairing it back to an ad. We've been hearing a lot about this trend recently called stop the scroll, right? So we, we really want to have somebody's attention when they're on one of their feeds, TikTok or otherwise, and say like, cool, I actually want to understand what this brand or person is saying to me. How does Turo get people to stop the scroll? So I think this kind of goes back to this conversation about AI versus humans. I think this is one of those things where people who are going to be using AI or robots to generate creative or marketing campaigns or copy, it's going to be very quickly spotted <laughs> by users. It's sort of the same thing that's happening today with, I call it with air quotes, kind of corporate marketing. You know, when people see an ad on Instagram or on TikTok or on whatever social media platform they're on, and it feels very corporate. It almost feels like overly produced or it feels like there's like some stock footage. You know, forget about it. That's never going to work. The stuff that performs well is the stuff that feels authentic, organic. Oftentimes, it's like more user-generated content. It feels like a bit more real. I think that's sort of the same thing that's going to be exacerbated with AI. If the story feels like it's just generic <laughs> and it's a generic value prop or it's a generic message, as humans, we're going to be very, very quick to pattern spot those things and we'll lose attention. And so it's going to be all about, you know, originality and telling these stories that it's pretty clear that only a human can come up with. We apply actually this cultural filter for all of our campaigns where we think about a variety of things like, is it culturally relevant? Like, why do people care about this right now? We ask, how does Turo actually contribute to this message? Is this a company just commenting on something on trend because they're trying to get eyeballs on it? Or is it actually something where they can add something to the conversation? So it needs to fulfill both of those things. And then three, is it something that only Turo can comment on that nobody else can? So something that we can uniquely comment on that other companies can't. So we apply those three filters to pretty much everything that we do on kind of the brand marketing side. And if it checks all those boxes, then that means the stars align for us to come up with something that can quote unquote stop the scroll. Do you have any examples of a campaign that uses some of those principles that you just outlined? So there's some stuff coming that I can't announce yet, but I can tell you about a campaign that came out towards the end of last year, early this year. It was a partnership that we did with Netflix's Wednesday, one of the top stream shows on Netflix. And we struck this partnership with them actually before the show even came out. So we had no idea it was going to be as big of a hit as it was. And so we ran this partnership where actually you could get the Wednesday mobile on Turo and you could book it and you could have an experience with the Wednesday oh. car on the platform. And we even wrote, we had this really funny, all of our listings have a host profile page and a car page. And so we wrote everything from the perspective of Wednesday Adams. <laughs> so our, our copywriters had a lot of fun with that and they did a really, really great job. And so that was an example of something that was obviously very culturally relevant. It was something that Turo could add to the conversation because we could make the car available. And it was something that only we could do that our competitors couldn't because our competitors they have economy car and compact car. They don't have the specific Wednesday car that is available for booking. So that was a really, really fun campaign for us that sort of checked all the boxes and performed quite well for us. 
I love that example. That it, that would be so much fun to hop into some branded cards. You talked about kind of that framework that you're applying to some of your campaigns, which really does sound like the do's and don'ts related to how Turo creates customer obsession. But do you have any advice that you've received from a peer or leader that you maintain around customer experience and building customer journeys? I've learned so much from my experience at Turo and I've learned so much from my boss at Turo, the CEO of Turo, Andre. But I think if I were to kind of synthesize it or distill it into the one single best piece of advice that I received, it's that progress is nonlinear, but it takes time. (laughs) It can be two steps forward, one step back sort of thing. And it may not always feel like you're making progress, but progress is unstoppable and it just takes time. And you know, I still remember when I first joined the company, I really uh, underestimated how long it was going to take to build peer-to-peer car sharing. I remember thinking to myself when I first joined, I was like, oh, hey, you know, maybe I'll know within a year, max two years, if this thing is going to go anywhere. This is back in 2012. I'll get a clear signal one way or the other. And that was just completely naive. It has taken at least, you know, 10 years to build this marketplace and to actually start to see, you know, more and more signs of it becoming mainstream and achieving product market fit. And, you know, just I think it reminds me of kind of this journey that we've been on. When I first joined the company, I still remember telling one of my family members, hey, I'm going to go join this thing where strangers share their cars and you give the keys to a stranger and I'm going to leave my blue chip job at consulting to go do this. And he just like looked at me with absolute disbelief and like disappointment. <laughs> He's like, what? Why would anybody want to do this? You know, fast forward to today, I actually just saw this family member a few months ago and he was like, I used Turo on a vacation. It was amazing. I absolutely loved it. Do you have a promo code? (laughs) And it's, you know, it's just this, it's this uh, stark kind of contrast of just like things take a long time. It's been 10 years plus building creative car sharing. By definition, if you're doing something that's bold and pioneering and new, people are going to think it's stupid. People are going to think it's crazy. It's par for the course with innovation. So just remember, it takes time. There aren't any shortcuts. You just have to focus on incremental improvement, getting a little bit better every day, 1% better every day. And, you know, you'll look back over the course of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, however long it takes, and you'll be really proud of what you've built. So that's certainly, I think, one of the main lessons that I've learned from my decade plus at Turo. It's a nice reminder to me as well. I've been in tech my entire career, and I think that it very often feels exactly that. It's two steps forward, one step back. But that is progress, right? To your point, it is. You have that vision. You're probably not going to get there in a year. If you did, your vision wasn't big enough, you know? And so we have this framework at segment that we call the customer data maturity framework. And so mm-hmm. at the end of it, you know, is this real-time personalization happening across all your different channels. And, you know, Amazon makes everybody want to do that today. That's not something you can do today. You're probably going to have to start by, you know, sending an email that is using some unique qualifier that you know about this person. And then you'll get there one day, right? But it's this incremental step change that we're all trying to do every single day to move the ball forward. I'm wondering if you have any brands or companies that you look to that you think are doing it right in terms of customer experience. There are quite a few. I mean, I think, of course, 
what Amazon is doing in terms of offering more, doing it better, <laughs> doing it cheaper, I think is very, very impressive. Obviously, I think just the ubiquity of everything that they do. I think that a lot of times marketers focus on retention in a way where they emphasize kind of like the hacks. You know, they emphasize, oh, I'm going to send more emails or I'm going to send more push notifications or I'm going to use more promos. And to me, these are all hacks. At the core of it, you know, customer retention and customer experience is all about delivering an amazing experience that you can't find anywhere else. That's the core engine. The rest of it is great and it's helpful. Emails, push notifications, promos, it helps accelerate that core, accelerate the flywheel. But the core of it is delivering this amazing seven-star experience, not just five-star, but seven-star experience that you can't find anywhere else. And I think, you know, Amazon has really embodied that in terms of everything that they've done. You know, the other one that has caught my attention recently, I have started to get into golf recently. It was one of the pandemic activities when there was nothing else to do. And so I've been learning a little bit more about sort of just the culture of golf and like kind of the history of the tournaments and things like that. And one thing that really caught my attention was there's this tournament called the Masters. The tagline is a tradition unlike any other. You know, it's the same tournament every single year at Augusta National and nothing changes, same color pattern, et cetera. But one thing that they do I thought was really cool, they really emphasize having their own glossary, having their own vocabulary. So when they do the broadcast and in all of their materials promoting the Masters, they don't talk about them, the sports fans, as fans. They call them patrons. They always call them patrons, and all the announcers call them patrons. Huh. They don't call the part of the grass that is like kind of a little bit thicker. It's sometimes it's called the rough. They call it the second cut. So it sounds very like kind of classy. It's the second cut of grass. They don't call it the sand traps. They call it bunkers. And it, you know, it just really highlighted, I think, the power of language. And it's something that we've done actually at Turo to great effect as well. We call our community hosts, those are the folks who have the cars and share them, guests, the people who are getting into the cars, and we call them trips. We used to call them owners, renters, and rentals. So very, very different. It's like we went from commoditized to really having more of a peer-to-peer, human-to-human feel and making it feel less like a faceless commoditized bland transaction into something that actually is a real human experience that is being offered by hosts and that is being completed by guests on these amazing trips. So, you know, it just highlights, I think, the power of language and how, you know, you're not going to quantify that really with data, how well that that's performed. But I think that that has had a huge impact in terms of the perception of the marketplace and also the quality of the marketplace and the way everybody kind of acts as a member of the tour. I love that example. An equivalent that I'm thinking of are all these social media platforms that immediately need to come up with a new name for the way that you post on it. So like Twitter, tweets, threads. I don't know what they are. Maybe it's a thread, you know, but the fact that you can get people to use the language that you are creating, but then to our very earliest kind of conversation is you're driving authenticity. You're speaking to the customer like they're human. And it's not a transaction. You don't ever want one of your customers to feel like they're being sold to or that they're a part of a queue that, you know, they have to line up for. It's supposed to feel one-to-one. It's supposed to feel authentic. And it's supposed to feel like you know them and they know you. So I love that language. Specifically with Turo, it was so important for us because there's property being shared here. The car is being shared. And, you know, there's, I think people have heard these tropes about like, oh, don't drive the car like a rental car. And, you know, 
They're treating the car, you know, not like they would treat their personal car. And that was part of our thinking when we went with hosts and guests because we wanted to make it seem like a more meaningful connection. So the hosts aren't just car owners. They're not just the owner of the car giving you this commodity. They're actually hosting your experience. They're hosting your trip. The guests aren't just customers. They aren't just renters. They aren't just these commodity consumers. They're actually guests. You're a guest in this host's car. Treat it well. <laughs> Treat it like you would if you were the guest of a friend or a family member. And so there was actually, I think, a lot of significance behind using hosts and guests because it also built, I think, kind of a sturdier foundation for trust and just care. You know, people taking better care of one another and of each other's things. And that's one of the big themes, too, I think that's happening right now related to a lot of this is building that trust and making sure, especially with data today, that folks really trust what you're doing as a brand. And I love the example of language being a way to influence that. Andrew, I have one more question for you Mm -hmm. as we round out. Do you have any steps or recommendations that you might share with somebody that's looking to up-level their customer experience strategies? I mean, I think the main thing is make sure that the customer voice is somehow intertwined with your daily job. Not weekly, not a monthly summary from somebody else who puts it into slides daily. You know, make it part of your daily routine to listen to the customer. And if you can, maybe not daily, but as often as possible, spend time with customers, sit in on a customer support call. You know, we have a host success team and we'll do ride along all the time. You know, like really listen and put yourself in the shoes of the customer as much as you can and use your product. Sounds so simple, but dog food your product. It's something that like, I think when you're first starting a company and it's only 10, 20, 30 people, it's kind of people are dog fooding their product every day. But then as the company gets bigger, people, they get busy with other things or maybe they just lose touch with it or maybe they just kind of take it for granted. But we have had so much in terms of product innovation, in terms of marketing innovation, just from actually dog fooding and using our own service. And we're still learning so many different things. So I would say definitely those two things, you know, making the customer voice part of your daily routine. And then number two, dog fooding your product as much as you can. I love that advice. Very wise. Connect your Slack channels or whoever else you are getting that information in. That is one of the most tactical ways that you can actually start to change your perception or understanding of customer voice. Love it. Andrew, so many insights today. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. In today's digital-first economy, being data-driven is no longer aspirational. It's necessary. Segment's leading customer data platform empowers every team with good data. From marketing and product to engineering and analytics, Segment unifies data silos into a single view of the customer. It allows teams to make data-driven decisions and personalize customer engagement in real time, all with one single platform to collect and manage your data. Curious to find out why over 20,000 businesses trust Segment to be their data foundation? You can learn more by visiting segment.com.